Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from the Open Data Science Conference. ODSC East returns to Boston May 20th through the 22nd, covering topics from data science to artificial intelligence. Use code TM at checkout for reduced price tickets. ODSC.com slash Boston for more information and registration. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. The world suffered a huge loss last week when uh, Professor David Mackay passed away at the age of 48, leaving um, behind uh, a wife and, and two very young children. David Mackay was my PhD advisor. David Mackay died very young, but he left behind an almost intimidating amount of amazing work across a wide range of areas of science and then ultimately policy. His PhD work uh, back in the early 90s was about Bayesian neural networks, something that has, in the sort of you know, reinvigoration of research into neural networks, come back into the limelight. People have been writing papers about Bayesian deep neural networks as ways to represent uncertainty and, and big regression and classification models of the kind that have become very powerful and successful for supervised learning. Uh, but he did this a lot earlier, <laughs> like a lot of things. Um, David and um, and also Radford Neal both thought a lot about how to represent uncertainty in these big in these big models. David's approach, while he was a PhD student under John Hopfield at Caltech, was to use deterministic approximations based on, uh, in particular, based on the Laplace approximation, and that's a very sort of elegant approach in which you uh, look at the curvature surrounding a maximum of the posterior distribution and fit a Gaussian distribution to that. On the other hand, Radford Neal took an, a Markov chain Monte Carlo-based approach to representing this uncertainty. And together they sort of uh, asked and answered a lot of the, the questions that would then come up later as we revisit Bayesian neural networks in an era with a lot more data and a lot more computation. David also initiated a lot of other really interesting questions surrounding that, in particular uh, ideas about active learning, like how you gather data that is going to be most informative about a posture distribution on something like a neural network. Um, and uh, But then after coming to Cambridge, uh, joining the faculty at Cambridge after he finished his PhD, he then went on to a completely different area of coding theory. So when uh, when I say coding theory, what I mean is the um, the science, the sort of information theory science of trying to uh, come up with error-correcting codes um, so whenever you have uh, a device like your, um, you know, your iPhone or uh, a CD or you want to transmit information over Wi-Fi or sort of any number of ways where you want to store or transmit information through a noisy medium, uh, it's necessary to use some kind of error correction in order to ensure that even if the CD gets damaged or even if there's um, interference, that it's possible with high probability to um, to decode the message. This is something that informs all of the devices that we use. Um, as you listen to this, the uh, the encoding that is that is on your phone or on your computer is almost certainly using some kind of error correction. It's really critical to absolutely everything. David and Radford rediscovered. Uh, the idea of low-density parity check codes, which had been introduced by Gallagher in the 60s. Um, but I guess at that time, they, they were sort of not, not ready, uh, in some sense, for, for widespread adoption. But in the 90s, the combination of sort of recognizing the existence of these codes, uh, as well as new interpretations of them as probabilistic graphical models that could have efficient iterative decoding, that is to say that you could come up with sort of dynamic programming algorithms that would that would very efficiently recover the original message given a possibly corrupted, um, you know, message with these with these parity check bits. The, sort of the combination of all these things caused them to to suddenly become kind of very relevant and and important. Since then, there have been a lot of other kinds of codes that, uh, in some ways, have superseded these LDBC codes. But nevertheless, and this was a sort of a very big contribution uh, that David made in, in the 90s, along with other kinds of related things like in thinking about how to do belief propagation and what the implications would be for performing belief propagation uh, in the kind of loopy graphs 
that um, by loopy here, I mean um, graphs that are not tree structured or chain structured. This is a way to sort of perform approximate inference in graphical models. Um, and, and he and, and other folks tried to try to kind of get to the bottom of that. In the late 90s, David used a lot of the insights that he gained from thinking about information theory and machine learning uh, to build a really remarkable human computer interface uh, called Dasher. The idea of Dasher is for people with uh, limited motor control, you'd really like to uh, allow them to type in a way that takes much better advantage of the bits that someone can communicate. So when we're thinking about coding theory, right, I, as I said, the idea behind uh, error correcting codes is to transmit bits over a possibly noisy channel. We want to maximize the number of bits we can send over a particular channel given its capacity. What's amazing about LDPC codes is that they approach what's called the Shannon limit, which is kind of the most number of bits you could ever uh, you could ever expect to send. Dasher, this human-computer interface, is a really remarkable application of a, a very similar idea, which is observing that when someone is using a computer, say typing on a keyboard or using uh, using their voice or using a mouse, that they're communicating bits to that uh, to that computer over a possibly noisy channel, and uh, actually typing out keystrokes, although many people are very good at it, is, is not a very sort of efficient use of that noisy channel in many ways. For people who have some kind of handicap that prevents them from uh, having as high a bit rate as somebody who's a proficient typist, the idea of Dasher is to explore sort of alternative modalities that uh, might enable someone, someone to still communicate at a high bit rate. And it observes that uh, essentially English, for example, and, and any language is not uh, is not just a uniform sequence of characters. That there's a huge amount of structure. That if I type a Q, that it's very likely that the next letter is going to be a U. That's not certain, but it's with high probability. And you can take advantage of that to form a code then that makes it easy to do the sort of um, most likely next thing. And that's exactly what the Dasher interface did is it allowed you to transmit a very small number of bits and kind of zoom in on a space of possible letters where the letters that are most likely, given the context, were larger. It sort of made it very easy with very few bits to write the most likely sequence of characters, and then you could save that, save those bits, kind of save the part of your sort of noisy channel, if you will, for communicating the most important bits of the message. And this was a really remarkable insight, and as David Style, of course, he created an open source project, and um, and really tried to get this kind of out into the world. And it's something that you can go and download, and it's made its way into phones and lots of other, lots of other kinds of devices. And uh, in a sense, it's been kind of very influential on a lot of other, um, I, th I think, human-computer interface modalities. Um, you might remember back before we all had smartphones, if you wanted to send a text message with just the sort of uh, regular sort of 0 through 9 keypad, then you would sort of type along using the sort of three letters associated with each number, and it would guess what you wanted based on based on the context. And that's exactly the same kind of idea, uh, which is observing that not all sequences are equally likely. And so therefore, even just given this kind of very coarse grain information, it's still possible to infer what you intended to send. And, and this takes advantage of almost exactly the same, the same idea. Then in 2003, David published a book on information theory uh, and machine learning that was, uh, again, as his style, like he released it freely, uh, um, both as a book through Cambridge Press, uh, Cambridge University Press, but also as a PDF that you can that you can download online. This book is a, has been tremendously influential. It's it's a, a really really wonderful book with a sort of very broad view on what it means to think about machine learning, what it means to think about information theory, and um, as David is a physicist, it it really sort of connects um, connects all of this to kind of with a very, you know, it puts all these things together with a very sort of physicist mindset of thinking about approximations and, and kind of reasoning from first principles. And it's, it's wonderful as a pedagogical tool because in, in it, essentially, David, in his somewhat idiosyncratic way, derives all of this stuff, all of this sort of machine learning, all of this inferential sort of, um, all of this giant inferential toolbox sort of from scratch, and you get to follow along while he does it. And it winds up being this kind of hilarious and amazing grab bag of chapters, each of which is about uh, some potentially kind of random topic that he then loops back in with this, this like larger theme. You know, everything from like, I don't know, fountain codes to Gaussian processes to sort of genetic optimality of having two sexes rather than one or three. 
it's a really fantastic book. I, I'm, I don't usually teach courses from it because it's so idiosyncratic, but it's, it's a wonderful read and it's, it's very highly recommended and it's free. Um, David then, you know, did a, a lot of different things, um, throughout the sort of, I would say the sort of early two thousands in particular thinking about Bayesian nonparametrics. He had a big influence on the community thinking about Gaussian processes and also Bayesian nonparametric models for, for language. Then, uh, he sort of really shifted gears very abruptly and really started thinking a lot about how to rationalize the debate, uh, around, um, sustainable energy and climate change. I was in his, his uh, research group at the time when, when this sort of happened. And it, in some ways it emerged out of a frustration in which it was clear that, you know, that action needed to be taken. And even if you don't think about, even if you don't believe in climate change, we will nevertheless run out of fossil fuels eventually. And so we kind of need to figure out some other ways to get energy, um, even in the absence of worrying about climate change. In the UK, it was clear that there were a lot of people who really cared deeply about this and wanted to, to really um, improve the situation. But because a lot of the people involved were not necessarily very quantitative, some of the things that captured the public imagination were sort of nonsensical. Um, the working example of this was a, a campaign that happened to encourage people to unplug their phone chargers when not in use. So that is to say, you know, you, you know, you maybe you charge your phone overnight and there's like a little, you know, brick that's plugged into the wall and then you unplug the phone and they said, oh, you know, do your part, unplug your phone charger when, you know, when you leave the house or whatever. Um, but of course you can, you can quantify that. I mean, that's not like the actual amount of power that gets used when a phone charger is just sort of left plug in. And of course it's like tens of milliwatts or something. And it's, uh, and so you can then try to balance that uh, against other kinds of ways that you consume energy day to day. And of course, like an entire, something like, you know, an entire year of leaving your phone charger plugged in is like one second of your, of your internal combustion engine running on your car. You know, this is people trying to make a difference. Like, honestly, I mean, everyone's kind of in the same, you know, like, like trying to do the right thing, but the math just doesn't work out. And, it's not like these kinds of activities have no cognitive load. And so he really felt like it was necessary to try to inject some, some arithmetic, if you will, into this uh, conversation. And so he started sort of giving talks and kind of doing some of the, what I think of as kind of physicist style back of the envelope math about like what's necessary to get from point A to point B, where point A is kind of like the current energy consumption and current uh, capabilities. And point B is a place where we want to use much, much less fossil fuel. You know, how do you actually you know, how do you actually like power things? How do you, how do you let people still turn on their tea kettles and get their packages from Amazon? And, and this was very focused on the, on the UK, but essentially what he did was sort of enumerate all the ways that people consume power and kind of, and, and of course, like things like, you know, stuff going on in your home is only one possibly smallish part of all that relative to every time you, you know, you buy some bananas at the grocery store there was an amount of power that was used not just to sort of grow those bananas, but also to move them and, and all of the sort of overhead involved in that. And, um, and he really sort of tried to, to add all of this up and then say, okay, so if this is our situation and, and there's some trajectory and there is an array of interesting ways that we can move away from fossil fuels and various kind of renewable energy possibilities, then how does this all work out? So maybe you want to have solar power well, how many solar panels do you need to put up in order to, to sort of get there? How many uh, windmills do you need to put up? How much coastline do you need to dedicate to tidal energy? And, and you can just sort of do the math on this. And, um, and again, very well-intentioned people had, uh, you know, really been pushing for, say, like solar panels in the UK. Well, the UK is like not a great place for solar energy, right? It's pretty far north and it's pretty cloudy a lot of times. And, and so it's not, so you'd have to, you would have to cover an enormous fraction of the, uh, of the total landmass of Great Britain in order to power people's needs. And so, you know, that should be a part of the mix, but you can't expect to rely on that solely. And, and you can sort of tick through all of these different things. Uh, you know, there's a maximum density at which you can place windmills because they shadow each other. And so you have the same kind of issues. And of course people... And this is without even getting into kind of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard where people really don't want to have windmills 
like nearby. Um, and yet we need windmills like everywhere in order for, uh, in order for this to work. And so you can, anyway, the point is that he just said, okay, let's remove sort of uninformative adjectives from this debate. And he didn't advocate for a particular modality, but he just said, here are the different modalities. Here are their different, their different sort of capacities. And here's the the kind of resources we have available to allocate to these things. Again, this was very focused on the UK and tried to suggest ways that they might get around it. And one of the things that was really interesting, he kind of came to the conclusion in some ways that there was not really a way to do it without involving nuclear power. That uh, at the end of the day, and for the UK specifically, most of the configurations that were viable didn't produce enough energy at the end of the day to really run the whole show. Uh, I think the quote in his book was that, you know, I'm not trying to be pro-nuclear, I'm just pro-arithmetic. And this kind of was not without controversy, right? Because the there has been a tendency, you know, for people kind of on the left who are very sort of pro, um, you know, very em- environmentalist who really kind of want to be on the right side of history with all of this and are trying to push, you know, push us all towards a better world with regard to things like energy and climate change have been in general anti-nuclear. And we can argue about the sort of like rational, you know, the rational nature of that, but uh, nevertheless, it has to be something in the mix. It's like part of the risk assessment of like, okay, well, you know, would you rather want the entire country tiled with windmills or are you willing to tolerate some nuclear power plants? Um, and more generally, are we willing to invest in sort of modernizing the way that we build nuclear power plants and things like that? This kind of seemed to capture the imagination of people quite a lot because David is kind of, David was, was kind of ultra leftist. Uh, he's, <laughs> he was one of the only people I've ever met who was a self-identifying communist. That's not the sort of thing that as an American you ever hear people do. Uh, to have somebody kind of, you know, that kind of like worldview sort of talking about, you know, in a very educated way, in a very quantitative way about how nuclear power would be a rational choice, um, sort of, I don't know, kind of got him, got him a lot of attention. And also just more generally, this kind of rational, this kind of rational approach, um, you know, got a lot of sort of, sort of really kind of caught fire. In particular, this thing he did, which is recognizing that, that um, it was very important for people to understand in, in clear units how all these pieces might go together. And so he wrote in his book, he, rather than talking about units that don't make sense to anybody, like terawatts, um, he instead put everything kind of in the context of leaving a 40-watt light bulb on all day, you know, and, and use that as a kind of base unit for reasoning about uh, power. You know, when you get that book delivered from Amazon, like how many, how many light bulbs is that? <laughs> and this is a, something that then helped people really understand how their consumption and how different thing, you know, different production mechanisms might, um, might actually work in units that were much more sort of accessible. After writing this book, he, um, he left academia essentially and spent five or so years as um, the chief scientific advisor to the government department on energy and climate change. And there, I think he, he kind of used that platform to really not just sort of think in terms of policies, but also to think in terms of kind of what I, what I kind of view as like education plus mechanism design, recognizing that moving the needle on these kinds of issues is not just about sort of top-down regulations and policies, but it's about educating people and, and creating incentives for people to understand and, and kind of do the right thing. So, for example, he you know one of his contributions was to take all of this math he had done um, and put it into something they called this sort of 2050 calculator, which rather than telling people what the policy should be, said, here is the math. Like, here, you, here is a, a way for you to move these sliders around to different possible ways to produce energy um, under the assumption that, that consumption is not going to necessarily change that dramatically um, unless you really want to, you know, change lifestyles in ways that people are not prepared to do. Rather than saying, here's the policy, it said, here's, here's, here's a space of policies. Here's a space of renewables and nuclear and different things. Work it out for yourself. Like, what do you think should, uh, should work? And I, I think that kind of empowerment helped sort of change the conversation from uh, kind of a lot of, a lot of kind of hand waviness towards, uh, towards sort of quantitative, you know, sort of quantitative analysis, something that was really, was really necessary. Yes, and then, then a, a couple of years ago, he was... Um, he became a fellow of the Royal Society, which is a, a very high honor for a scientist in, in the United Kingdom. Um, and then this past uh, this past winter, he he was knighted. 
um, and uh, he he was diagnosed with uh, stomach cancer last um, last July, um, and he I would really recommend um, reading his blog about this. It's a very amazing uh, journey, and it's it's very David. It's very thoughtful, as it and it's and it kind of talks about the choices that you know one has to make in the, the situation that he was in and and it addresses questions like how do you how do you talk to your children about this this kind of thing and how do you you know how do you sort of live live your life in the face of in the face of this this kind of um, the certainty um and it's it's very it's very thought-provoking uh the name of the blog is everything is connected david was a, a remarkable man and he he's someone who walked the walk like i you know he espoused a lot of ways that that we could make the world a better place and a lot of people do that but David also then lived by those things that he that he you know that he talked about and he you know he's had a tremendous scientific influence on a lot of people um, through his book and through his teaching and through his amazing talks and uh, you know and and through his his advising of grad students um, and collaborations he was really tremendous scientist. Honestly, I think he is one of the sort of scientific giants of our times. We'll have more about David Mackay, his work, his books, and his a link to his personal blog on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Philip Hennig. He is a research group leader at the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems, and he was also a student of uh, Professor Mackay's. And when I sat down with Philip at NIPS this past year, we asked him the first same question that we ask everybody, how did you get where you are? I think I consider myself still a relatively young man, but in the fast-paced world of machine learning, I'm uh, already middle-aged, I guess. So I come from the... I I started machine learning during the sort of amateur phase when... Uh, there were no undergraduate courses in the field, and it was still uh, completely normal for people to come from various different backgrounds. And I studied physics in Heidelberg in Germany um, originally. And, uh, then during my master's thesis in Germany, I worked on some Monte Carlo simulations for electron microscopes, which got me excited about random numbers and sampling methods. And I started reading a wonderful textbook by David Mackay, who then ended up being my PhD advisor in Cambridge. Um, so this is the same group that Ryan also did his PhD in. Um, where I spent time from 2007 to 2000, late 2010, a short stint in Zubin Garamani's group, also in Cambridge, and moved to Tübingen to the Max Planck Institute, where I've been ever since. Uh, slowly changing roles from uh, a postdoc to uh, various weirdly named... Uh, job titles to uh, now running a small research group of something like five PhD students. And during my PhD, I was, um, uh, well, so David was a very inspiring kind of PhD advisor who uh, gave people lots of freedom to work on various different projects. So I worked on various different projects that most of them didn't lead anywhere. Uh, But one thing that I kept discovering, or that maybe actually David pointed out to me on various points, is that uh, the that the the algorithms I was working on, the methods using in machine learning, where it was actually possible to think about these methods w- in the language of probability, in the language of inference itself, and this is something that then became a theme for my work, and this is now basically what I do all the time, thinking about computation as inference. Yeah, I think one of the really sort of interesting things that that David would do often was take you know. You know, as a you know, as a you know, when I was a grad student too, and and he would sort of explain some problem or talk about the way he thought about some problem. He would show how some typical computational procedure was really an estimation problem, and that we could interpret this estimation problem uh, probably in a Bayesian way with some possibly very strange prior. Um, I remember one time uh, you'll I don't know if I've told you this, but the uh, uh, one time when I was a grad student. Uh, I was talking to David about research projects and things, and and he sort of handed me a copy of Numerical Recipes, and said, "I bet 
that every one of these things could be interpreted as uh, some kind of estimation problem and that there are cleverer things to do if you were Bayesian. And, you know, uh, or, or more serious, or, or I guess not even necessarily being Bayesian specifically, but that if you made clear what your assumptions were, that you could probably improve a lot of these, these estimation procedures. And, you know, at the time, it just like washed right over me. Like I was like, David, I don't know what you're talking about. And that sounds like a horrible idea. Um, you know, or I mean, I didn't say that, but I just didn't, I just didn't get it in any way. And, um, but it's clear that, that like it resonated with you like much more or, or, or you independently arrived at it, which I, I'm, I'm not, um, but the, but in any case, it's, um, I, I have come to appreciate that I was massively foolish for, for like not getting it at that time because, you know, you've built this, this whole essentially subfield of probabilistic numerics and I think it's amazing. And it's one of these things where I, I just think, dang, I could have been there in the beginning. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, it certainly, it certainly took me uh, a lot longer than just my PhD to uh, realize this as well. And I had similar conversations with David, uh, and I also maybe didn't take the, the, the insight serious enough. It actually uh, it, it, it only began to really dawn on me that, that this... There's, there's such a deep connection to uh, between inference and computation in, I think it was around, well, after my PhD, 2011, 2012, something like this. Um, and I actually don't really remember what the f first project was that made it really clear, but um, it certainly became clear when we had a look at um, optimization methods. So I basically just wanted to learn about numerical optimization methods for, for local uh, nonlinear continuous optimization, and I looked at a standard textbook by Jochen Osedal, and uh, looked at how the BFGS method, which is a standard optimization method for this for this setting, is derived, and it, it hit me that it's very clearly just a least squares estimator, and that sort of started this uh, sort of longer thought process. Then we we had a a, a, a NIPS workshop in 2012, I think. With um, uh, that I co-organized with John Cunningham and uh, Mike Osborne, uh, which we just we just on a whim just called probabilistic numerics because we needed a title for this whole thing, and then out of that workshop came a, a website and uh, now more and more uh, developments that have actually turned this into an exciting kind of kind of yeah well direction. Although of course the f the the people who actually had this idea first were way earlier, so. I think the the the, um, the first real paper that that um, very precisely makes this connection points out that numerical methods are inference algorithms, methods that estimate something you can't compute given something you can compute, uh, was Percy Diaconis in nineteen eighty-eight, I think. And um, there's actually an older paper by Grace Waber, the great Grace Waber, um, with a student, I think, called uh, Kimmeldorf in the 70s, who observed that splines, which are kind of a classic tool in numerical analysis, were Gaussian process posteriors, even though they wouldn't really talk about numerical methods. But I think that's really the, the point where this thought process starts. Yeah, w would you just sort of take a minute and maybe set the context for what we're talking about when we say probabilistic numerics? Yes. So... Um, Perhaps from the point of view of a machine learning audience, the, the, a good way to think about this is that in machine learning as a field, we, over the past few decades, have perhaps focused on developing very powerful models to describe very challenging large data sets. But what we have, um, uh, the, 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 the way we then perform the computations that we have to do to train these models to these data sets uh, is that we've taken algorithms that were developed by other communities to a large degree, for example, by applied mathematicians and by uh, physicists and uh, numerical analysts, and applied them as black boxes to our problems. So for example, by, this, by numerical methods, I mean linear algebra algorithms like conjugate gradient, linear conjugate gradient, nonlinear optimization methods like BFGS, integration methods like Markov chain Monte Carlo, and solvers for differential equations like kung methods. And we, we take these methods as black boxes that someone else has developed for us, and we trust that the, whoever has invented these methods has made sure that they work well and that they do their task efficiently. But when you think about what these methods actually do, then you realize that these are actually machine learning algorithms. They are elementary machine learning algorithms. They are inference rules. So 
an integration method, for example, estimates an integral. This is an object you can't compute. It's a latent quantity. Given something that you can compute, which are values of the integrand at various points. So it estimates a latent quantity given data, where the data is the result of a computation. And in this sense, very abstractly speaking, a computer is an, is an information collecting agent. It's, it's, a, it's a machine that sort of performs actions on the silicon to uh, collect information about an unknown quantity. I often feel like there's a little bit, I encounter some confusion about these methods philosophically because people um, have a hard time viewing them as the estimators that they are some, precisely because you have access, for example, to the integrand point-wise at any place you want. So, yes. Or Bayesian optimization where you have, again, access to this function. So what's what's not to know? What yes. is it? Like how could you possibly be treating this as a random variable? Yeah. How do you... Um, how do you sort of respond to that kind of philosophical uh, like uh, sort of qu line of questions? So there's, um, there's two ways to think about this. One is, and this is an argument that is from this original paper by President Arconis, is um, I can write down an, an, an integrand on a piece of paper, and I have a favorite integrand, which is the exponential of minus sine squared of 3x minus x squared. So the, the point about this is, this is, if you write this down, this is a string that has something like 18 characters, and it totally and perfectly, as Ryan says, uh, describes this integrand in an unambiguous way. So it's totally, this is, this is not a stochastic object. It's not a, not a, a random draw from a probability distribution. Um, but when, so, well, and, and, and if you evaluate this function sort of uh, to double precision on a computer, you can evaluate it over and over again. You always get the same number back. So it's totally deterministic. But when you write an integral sign in front of it, and uh, say I'm asking for the indefinite integral over this function, then you can't tell me what the value of this is, and I can't tell you because I can't look it up in any table of integrals. It's just not in, in these tables. Right? Um, we, even though we know the integrand, we are uncertain about the value of the integral. But, of course, it's easy to make uh, statements about this integral. This is a continuous function. It's a smooth function even, so it's integrable. The integral exists. It's also definitely of a finite value because you, you, this is a strictly positive function. So it has to be larger than zero. It's a function that is upper bounded by some function that we know how to integrate, the Gaussian function. So there is, uh, it has to be smaller than some constant. There, so there is a number that exists, and it lies between some bounds. So evidently, we are finitely uncertain about this value. Right? But we really don't know it. So the uncertainty here is an epistemic uncertainty. It's, it's not knowing about something rather than uh, what's called an aleatory uncertainty, so rather than an uncertainty that arises from randomness. Another way to think about this is um, more, perhaps more in a sort of a computer science fashion in terms of complexity. So we, um, we are used, if, if I'm allowed to call it classic computer science, we are used to to computers being either right or wrong. So you can write a program that is either incorrect and then it's just false, whatever it produces is just wrong, or it's correct and then whatever it produces is just right. Um, and that's true for simple elementary computations like sort of basic arithmetic operations. But um, in the, these kind of numerical tasks that I just outlined, so linear algebra, large scale linear algebra, or solution of differential equations, um, it's often the case that, so because these are computations that don't have an exact answer in finite time. There's usually a whole family of algorithms, all of which are correct in the sense that if they run forever, they'll give the correct answer. But some of them converge a lot faster than others. So, and, and they do that because they make more assumptions about the problem. And if those assumptions are correct, then the, their answer will be arrived at very efficiently and it will be reliable. And if the assumptions are incorrect, then they might converge very fast to an answer that's completely useless. I mean, this this sounds almost exactly like the the classic sort of bias variance trade off that we think about in lots of other machine learning tasks. And it is, and in many ways, well, actually, it's, a, it's sort of one of the biggest takeaways of this idea of probabilistic numerics is that virtually all the the insights and the problems, the philosophical problems that we have in um, what you might call sort of physical statistics, so the 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 inference from data that has been collected in the real world, translate over to computation. So we have the problem that we have to reason about prior assumptions and whether they're correct or not. And if you make no prior assumptions, then you can't make meaningful statements. Um, we have a bias, bias, bias variance trade-off. Um, 
we have model selection problems, and we have the usual problem that actually the true problem is normally or typically not actually uh, uh, in a region that the prior puts mass on. So we, we have sort of approximate answers. But there is one fundamental difference between, let's call it physical statistics or inference from real-world data sources and numerical inference, and that is that we have access to this string that encodes the problem. So, um, in sort of statistics from physical data sources, the, the, the normal mathematical approach is that we just make certain assumptions and we just, put, we just write them down if we're good Bayesians or maybe we sort of do them, make them implicitly um, and just hope that they are correct and there's no, fundamentally no way to actually check them. But in uh, numerical problems, we, the, the, the computer who uses, which uses this prior can parse the program code that describes the problem in an unambiguous way to check whether the prior assumptions are actually correct or not. That's a really fascinating sort of point. And at least at the surface, you, would, you might imagine that it connects to the notion of sufficiency in statistical estimation. That, you know, so if we talk about um, sort, of, sort of sufficient statistics, what we're broadly saying is that, there is, that, that we have something possibly large that can be summarized compactly. And I had sort of never considered the possibility that the very fact that the this kind of, you know, uh, epistemic uncertainty, sort of what that means is that we are able to describe the problem compactly, but that there's something hard about examining it um, or or thinking about it. I, but I mean, this is a kind of a hand wavy thing, but there, but it, you're kind of describing the concept of sufficiency uh, when you say that the problem is completely contained in in uh, in a string, right? I'm in yes. So in in the sense that um, we we can at least test whether certain assumptions that the prior makes, for example, through its sufficient statistics or, or through the existence of sufficient statistics, um, are actually represented by the real problem that we're trying to solve. Now, and unfortunately, this kind of uh, the fact that this problem is so precisely accessible to us also means that we don't get away anymore with just making certain prior assumptions and not questioning them. It's a lot easier to do that when you're dealing with a physical data source where you can just have sort of a leisurely philosophical discussion about whether the assumptions are correct or not, um, while in the numerical setting you can really point out that certain assumptions are incorrect. And we often discover that um, the, 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 the priors we use are fundamentally either too weak in the sense that they, that's in, we, 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 we notice that it's impossible to encode certain very salient, important aspects of the problem just because we don't have the algebraic language for it, or that we fundamentally can't represent certain aspects about the problem and then have to live with the fact that we get an approximate answer. So one of the other things you said that I, I thought was uh, really interesting was connecting it to sort of the larger sort of... Uh, you know, the way that we think about computer science. And within sort of broadly theoretical computer science, you know, there's this area of like randomized approximation algorithms where you take some problem that is hard and maybe sort of formally hard in a complexity theory sense, and it can be shown that we can get, for example, a polynomial time randomized approximation. And uh, it seems like there should be interesting connections between what your, you know, you know, sort of your agenda here in probabilistic numerics and these kinds of estimation problems that are leveraging somehow uh, sort of uncertainty. Again, it's, it's a computable thing. It's like estimating a partition function or the, uh, you know, the permanent of a matrix, uh, you know, something that, that kind of, you know, maybe is like sharp P or something. And, uh, and yet, if we sort of sort of introduce some probability then uh then things become become easier um yes so if, if you allow me to, to slightly sort of change slightly deviate from, from from your question there is actually a um one of the biggest maybe even misconceptions that we have to um that we, that we face when we talk about probabilistic numerics is that people often immediately assume that we're talking about methods that use random numbers and they're uh, to me, the the use of random numbers is sort of orthogonal to the use of uncertainty in computation. It's uh, there are methods that use random numbers to a very in a very useful way, and there are, there are really good uses for random numbers in computation. Um, but 
it's not necessary to use random numbers to perform a computation that returns a probability measure. Um, in particular, it's not necessary to use Monte Carlo methods to compute integrals, for example. This is, uh, integration in many ways is the area where uh, the, the connection is the easiest to understand because integration is a linear operation and the, the algorithms there are, uh, the, the classic algorithms in integration are very close to the kind of algorithms we know in machine learning. So basically classic quadrature uh, rules are curdle rich regressors. So they can be interpreted as Gaussian process regression. Um, and in low-dimensional integration, so one- or two-dimensional integration, no uh, programmer worth their sort of machine learning education would use a Monte Carlo estimator to compute an integral, unless it's a really weird kind of in integral, right? So y you, would, you would use a quadrature rule a classic quadrature rule, which can converge extremely fast. And a one-dimensional integration problem there uh, that um, is sufficiently sort of regular, there are algorithms that converge polynomially or even super polynomially, even super exponentially fast. While Monte Carlo is fundamentally limited to converging stochastically, so of order one over the square root of number of samples. In high-dimensional high dimensional regime, somehow our community so in high-dimensional settings, regression algorithms don't work this well. They, they um, don't scale particularly well, which has something to do with the structure of the kernel and this kind of the prior assumptions encoded in the problem. And somehow this has turned into, uh, or the, this, this kind of co connection has been a bit lost and our community has decided that high dimensional integrals should be solved with random numbers. And that means that we are fundamentally restricted when we use these algorithms to this convergence rate, which is one over the square root of n. And to me, this is at the moment one of the biggest roadblocks for things like probabilistic programming to, to really take off and to really be a competition to uh, non-probabilistic computations because we have to solve these high-dimensional integrals when we do probabilistic inference and we, we are really restricted in the kinds of algorithms we can use there which have this sort of high computational complexity because all the algorithms we are using at the moment are either finite complexity, like variational bounds, so uh, sorry, they are finite capacity or they are uh, of this stochastic nature like Monte Carlo methods. And one of the, the long-term uh, questions that we are trying to answer or that we are trying to slowly get a hold of with this, with this community is to figure out how expensive it should really be to compute marginal distributions in probabilistic uh, inference problems. So, uh, I mean, there is this middle ground that machine learning people infrequently talk about which is this idea of quasi Monte Carlo, right? Where, so quasi Monte Carlo uh, is this idea that you, if you're going to use random numbers to, uh, to estimate an integral, then uh, actually choosing those numbers sort of uniformly and randomly is not as good as it could be. You actually prefer them, the, all the points to sort of be spread out evenly in a certain sense. Um, grids achieve that, but grids uh, scale exponentially poorly in uh, in dimension but there's the there is this idea of a low discrepancy sequence where essentially it's a it's a sequence of numbers that are space filling within some volume and um, and has the property that none of the points are sort of tend to be very near each other and this seems like it's it's exploring a very similar intuition which is that we should be able to do better than sort of one over root n and in theory QMC is sort of one over n yes. how does that connect with uh, with this work is it possible to interpret, um, you know, quasi Monte Carlo as samples from a determinantal point process or something that has some interesting structure uh, yes. that can be interpreted probabilistically? Yes. So there is actually, uh, um, um, well, there are various different ways, of course, of thinking about uh, quasi Monte Carlo. And so, so the, I think for me, the short answer is quasi Monte Carlo is a step in the right direction, but it's not the entire answer. So there's, there's a, um, to to integrate uh, to to compute an integral efficiently, we sort of need two things. We need to evaluate the function at the right point, and then we need to do something smart with the numbers that we get out of these evaluations. And Cosimo Carlo is an answer to the first problem, and not necessarily to the latter. Um, there is actually a way of deriving Cosimo Carlo um, as a particular limit case of um, Gaussian process regression under a particular kernel, which is sort of a little bit technical and it's a bit difficult to sort of just do an audio. But the, um, the, the, the really important bit, so Cosimo Monte Carlo also has this problem that it doesn't scale particularly well to high dimensional pro uh, pro problems um, uh, in, in the sense that, well, it scales 
similarly badly as Monte Carlo, right? So it still works. It's still a lot better than classic quadrature rules, which, bas which basically only work in one and two dimensions. Um, uh, but it doesn't really break, the, it doesn't really give us a massive increase in, in kind of computational power. To me, and this is not something that has been answered yet, this is a totally open research direction, which we'll hopefully discuss at our NIPS workshop this year as well, is that to compute integrals faster, we need to do very efficient regression. We need to do something smart with the function values that come out of this. And this is an interesting situation because it's, it, it means that the contributions in this area will come from people who understand regression well, who understand well how to design structured Gaussian process regression models, who, who know how to design kernels and uh, uh, reproducing kernel Hilbert spaces. So I hope that the contributions in this area will come from our community, from statisticians, from machine learners, from people who think about prior assumptions and, and model spaces. Um, and it's going to perhaps be easier for our community to make this contribution than for, say, someone without wanting to talk down to these people, uh, someone from numerical uh, analysis or from um, physics or sort of the communities where Monte Carlo methods originally came from. So that's one very important, for, to me, a really important value of this probabilistic view on computation and a reason why we're doing it in the machine learning community and why we're sort of feeling at home here is that this is a community that um, knows how to think about models and how to think about the capacity of a model, how to design these models and analyze them and get a, also not just a theoretical, but also kind of an intuitive handle on, on such algorithms. So, I mean, to that point, I, I think some of the reason that, you know, the, a lot of these numerical methods, I don't know, uh, Simpson's rule or whatever, it, whatever your sort of favorite uh, kind of recipe from numerical recipes is, um, these over the decades have been distilled down to interestingly small lines of code that can have kind of, uh, you know, where you sort of need five to 10 lines of code to solve a lot of these different kinds of problems. Now, obviously, serious people go far beyond that when they have deeper understandings of these things. But it can often be surprising how much progress one can make with a small with a small uh, sort of small amount of code. Um, what's the hope for the methods you're developing to be able to be distilled down to these kind of compact things that a sort of like, uh, you know, first year grad student could apply? So um, I think I'd have to give two different answers to this kind of question. So the, the first one is there is often um, a, a worry that when we use words like uh, Bayesian inference or probabilistic inference, that people immediately think of expensive algorithms and that the corresponding methods have to be a lot more expensive than the methods that they're used to. Um, that's actually, actually the reason why we're calling it probabilistic numerics rather than Bayesian numerics, because people sort of associate Bayesian methods with expensive, complicated algorithms. Um, the, in, in fact, it turns out that it's often possible to build Bayesian or probabilistic methods that have virtually the same cost as classic numerical methods. An example of that is a paper that we just had just presented at this year's NIPS, which is a, a line search method for probabilistic problems, sorry, for, for stochastic problems, like they arise in uh, deep learning, for example, or actually in any big data setting. So whenever, whenever your uh, data set is too large to be stored in memory uh, at, at any given time, then people, do, people sample data, uh, data points from, from the entire data set and sort of move through the data set, and that produces uncertainty or you might call it noise on function evaluations. And this is something that classic numerical methods perhaps are not so good at representing because they're not designed for this kind of task. Uh, now, once you write a, a, even a classic numerical method as a particular probabilistic inference rule, and this may be something that we should point out at this point, that there are many classic, very old numerical algorithms, like, for example, BFGS, linear conjugate gradient, Runge-Kutta methods, and... Um, well, even classic quadrature rules, which are directly interpretable as maximum a posteriori estimates. So it's possible to, to use a method that is already there. It's already a black box that sits on your computer. Just think about it as a probabilistic inference rule. So evidently, it's possible to build fast Bayesian methods because these are essentially Bayesian methods. They're just not used in this way. So once you make this kind of connection very clear, you can start to make changes in the derivation of these methods, which, is not ne which are not necessarily expensive, which are not necessarily increasing the computational cost, but allow us to introduce aspects that are specific to our machine learning problems 
and that the methods were originally perhaps not designed to do, like, for example, incorporating noise on computations. So this is one prime use for, uh, for these algorithms, is that um, they, we can build numerical methods that not just return probability measures as outputs, but also take as their input a description of their task that is not a logical description, but that is a probability measure or an uncertain description over their task. Like, for example, methods that can deal with optimization problems where the optimization objective is only available up to noise and then still converge. And these methods do not necessarily have to cost more, just like um, for those people who know about Gaussian processes, Gaussian process regression with noisy evaluations of the uh, regression function are not more expensive than Gaussian process regression with a noise-free objective function. Actually, it's exactly the same cost, right? So th there, are, there are definitely ways in making building um, more robust numerical methods or incorporating aspects, challenges of machine learning in a numerical method that don't, don't have to increase computational cost. But sometimes it might also be worth increasing the cost a little bit in return for a method that then converges faster or needs fewer data points or becomes maybe more reliable or gives a more precise uh, measure of uncertainty to its output. Philip Hennig of the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems. He's a research group leader there, which is sort of a, uh, an associate professor position. Yeah, like an assistant professor. Um, and, and that's a really fantastic group there. I feel very lucky to have been able to overlap some at Cambridge with Philip. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from the Open Data Science Conference. ODSC East returns to Boston May 20th through the 22nd, covering topics from data science to artificial intelligence. Use code TM at checkout for reduced price tickets. ODSC.com slash Boston for more information and registration. The Talking Machines theme song was composed by John Parati. Our logo was created by Alex Wilchko and arranged by Mike Rohr. Got a question? Email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS.